from the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi, this is Vanessa Williams from The Washington Post. Hey, it's Philip Rucker at The Washington Post. Do you have a minute? Hi, this is Dan Zak. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Tuesday, May 18th. Today, how the investigation into Matt Gates is testing the Department of Justice and two sisters' mission to save their parents. Matt Gates is a congressman from Florida. He's sort of most well-known because he's one of these young, very strident defenders of now former President Donald Trump. Matt Zapatosky covers the Justice Department for The Post. Over the past couple of months, he has been following the unfolding investigation into Congressman Matt Gates. He's kind of a, a darling of the very conservative right. He's a guy who comes from kind of a fairly prominent but old school Republican family in Florida and has cut his own path by just aligning with this kind of firebrandy, you know, right-leaning conservative and so does a lot of media appearances. This is the quickest, thinnest, weakest, most partisan impeachment in all of American presidential history. And for all the radical left's attacks on the president's honesty, it's their lies that continue to fuel this scorched earth strategy of impeachment. He had been kind of a star on Fox News until these most recent allegations against him surfaced, though even in in light of them, he sort of is out there everywhere. To a crowd of loyal Trump supporters, Congressman Matt Gaetz, who happens to be currently under federal investigation, and Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene, a conspiracy theorist and QAnon supporter, joined forces tonight to launch an America First tour. He's also, you know, not shy about speaking his mind about a whole host of issues. President Trump rightly pointed out the improper activities of the Biden crime family. And subsequently, he's been proven right. And don't think for a moment, Madam Speaker, that we're going to drop that or stop our pursuit for the truth. So why is Matt Gates being investigated now? Well, Matt Gates is being investigated now because the Justice Department has come to suspect he might have engaged in sex trafficking involving a minor. Um, to make a long story short, they were investigating a friend of Matt Gates, a guy named Joel Greenberg, who was a local tax collector in Florida uh, for a host of crimes. But in the course of that, they came across evidence that Matt Gates might have had sex with a 17-year-old, the same 17-year-old that this guy, Mr. Greenberg, they believed had sex with. They believed that violated federal sex trafficking laws and um, pursued, prosecuted um, Joel Greenberg for it and are continuing to investigate whether Matt Gates might have some legal exposure there. The notable development this week in the Matt Gates case was Joel Greenberg agreed to plead guilty to his own child sex trafficking charge to help reduce his legal exposure, and he agreed to cooperate with investigators. And that's really important because Joel Greenberg is considered kind of a key witness in the Matt Gates investigation. And now we know 
as of this Monday, he is fully on side with prosecutors with a judge accepted plea deal that gives him a lot of incentive to give up other people to provide substantial assistance to help prosecutors get other people. And we know one of those other people they're investigating is Matt Gates. We don't know much about the 17-year-old. We know she's an adult now, but there really isn't that much that's out there about her aside from some speculation about who she is. She hasn't been um, publicly identified anywhere. We don't know the extent to which she is cooperating with investigators, though her testimony obviously would also be really key to the case. And, and how did Gates respond to these allegations initially? You know, after the allegations are first reported against him uh, by the New York Times and we confirm them, Matt Gates appears on Fox News and in just this really dramatic interview alleges that there is a side extortion plot by a couple of people who found out about this investigation and in Matt Gates's account, try to use it to extort money from his family. What is happening is an extortion of me and my family involving a former Department of Justice official. He has since insisted that he's essentially innocent of these allegations. He says that he's never paid for sex, nor has he ever had sex with a 17-year-old when he, meaning Matt Gates, was an adult. And he's also said that this is just politicized, right? He's sort of come after the Merrick Garland Justice Department, said, you all are just investigating me because I'm close with President Trump. I should point out here, though, that this investigation actually began in the Trump administration when Bill Barr was the attorney general. And it proceeded with Bill Barr's knowledge and, you know, at least tacit approval. He didn't attempt to shut it down. And considering the fact that this investigation started under a Republican administration, is that being acknowledged by other Republicans or do they also see this as like a political takedown or attempted political takedown of Matt Gates? I think that would depend by and large on which Republicans you talk to. But if we're just sort of generalizing, overall, Republicans have just been very guarded in the way they've commented about this thing. They haven't taken steps to kick Matt Gates out of their party or out of his committee assignments or anything like that. They've basically taken publicly a wait and see posture. A lot of Florida politicians, really some Florida politicians have said they're just not going to talk about this. Um, Kevin McCarthy has said sort of let's wait and see what the Justice Department does. So they've in a loose way sort of stood by Matt Gates and that they're not ousting him. But nor have you seen a steady drumbeat of mainstream Republicans saying these investigations are unfounded. This is politicized. I think there's at, at least some, if not public, some private acknowledgement. Well, this started under the Trump administration. Let's just see where it goes. And what about former President Trump? Has he said anything about the fact that one of his top loyalists is being investigated right now? Trump has, I believe, made just very simple comments in this. And I think that's notable in this respect. When former President Trump was President Trump, he was not shy at all about commenting on Justice Department business, Justice Department cases involving his friends. He has not been on the warpath on this one. I think you can say that 
totally fairly. You know, this is not a thing where he's issuing statements every day talking about how Matt Gates is being unfairly targeted and wronged and things like that. Now, we'll see if the Justice Department were to charge Matt Gates. Maybe he would become vocal on this. But Trump has behaved like a lot of other Republicans on this in that they've been a little shy about leaning, you know, really hard into something. And that's sort of out of character for Donald Trump, particularly when he was president. Is Matt Gates's political career now at risk? And what would it look like if he were to no longer be a member of Congress? I think it is at risk, but it, it largely depends on what the Justice Department does next. Because so far, Matt Gates really hasn't receded from public view at all. He's still appearing publicly. He's shown no signs of kind of quietly going away. So I frankly expect even if charged, he would continue to fight. That's just his nature. That's how he sort of became prominent. It's just a combative guy willing to really lean into controversy. That's what he's done so far here. And I don't really have any reason to believe that charges would scare him any, in any respect. I'm curious, what do you think are the stakes here beyond just what happens to Matt Gates and his, his own political career? Like, what, why does this matter? It's going to be a real test for the Justice Department. Can they prosecute a prominent supporter of President Trump and still convince the public, hey, we're apolitical. This is an apolitical case. Matt Gates has already hinted at this. And certainly I think if he were charged under the Merrick Garland Justice Department, he would raise this more head on. You know, you're pursuing me because I'm a supporter of President Trump. So, you know, there are big stakes here for the Justice Department. Can the Justice Department investigate and or prosecute Matt Gates and convince conservatives who might like Matt Gates, they're doing so fairly and that the Justice Department is apolitical. It's not just sort of a Biden weapon that is now turned against Republicans. Matt Zapatowski covers the Justice Department for The Post. Sabi Robinson produced this story. I'm Hannah Rosen, host of Radio Atlantic. Wait, really? Every week, we talk to Atlantic writers or other creative thinkers, and we take one idea and we road test it. Maybe what I'm asking is, is the problem them or us? Sometimes I change my mind about things. That's such a good point. I never thought of that. Maybe you will, too. Or at least you might see something differently. Ooh, that's fabulous. Radio Atlantic. New episodes every Thursday. The COVID situation in India for the past month or so has been absolutely devastating. So in the past month, India has recorded more than 10 million new cases and recorded almost 100,000 new deaths. Ruby Mellon covers foreign affairs for The Post. India had initially thought that they had kind of beat COVID. Um, around January and February, cases were falling at a really exciting pace. And Indian Prime Minister Modi had said, you know, we beat this thing. Um, he was holding political rallies, people were gathering, but that all kind of changed in April when there basically came this unexpected second wave that, if you look at the graphs, looked like a wall. The country's healthcare system totally collapsed. People were just left with no options in ways of finding care. 
So you have been reporting on two sisters in New Delhi. Can you tell me a little bit about them? Sujata and Supriya are two sisters in their mid-40s, and they're very close to each other. They both have families and children. um, And at the center of their very big family of children and cousins and uncles and aunts are their parents, who they're very, very close to. They describe their parents as having a real zest for life. They were both very strong people, very loving, strong, and uh, extremely doting on all their daughters doting on the grandchildren and now both of them were kind of retired all they wanted was to spend time with them they're all just very tight-knit supriya actually lives in the same building as her parents do just a few floors down and at what point did their parents start to get sick so that all changed when the sister's parents came down with covid in around mid-April, it started with her father who, you know, was starting to feel sick, starting to experience kind of the viral symptoms. Um, and on the evening of April 15th, his oxygen levels started dropping. So that sent Sujata on a major hunt throughout Delhi to find her father a hospital bed. This was when New Delhi was dealing with its peak surge. And so finding care in the city was almost impossible. Starting around midnight, Sujata drove all around the city looking for a place for her dad. She would hear a hospital had beds, then she'd get there and she would be turned away because they were full. By 5 a.m., she found her father a hospital bed in a government-run hospital. It was the seventh one that she visited. And, you know, when she and her father got to the hospital... There were people everywhere and piles and piles of paperwork and people waiting, being administered oxygen as they were waiting. The scene was just really chaotic. And Sujata, who's an architect and an urban planner, her instinct was to take out her phone and start filming. She was waiting with him in the waiting room with a bunch of other people who were sick with COVID. It was there that he got a rapid test that came back positive and he was kind of whisked away into isolation. And that was the last time she saw him alive. Hmm. Well, what happened after he was whisked away inside the hospital? They were communicating. He had a phone and then that was on April 16th. And then on April 18th, they tried calling him in the morning and no one was picking up, and they kept trying. And then finally, at around 2 p.m., another patient picked up, and that patient basically told her, you know, your father's been dead for the last two hours, but nobody's come in here to check. My dad used to call me every afternoon without fail. I feel very guilty about him that I couldn't at least try for a better place. But there were no rooms anywhere. And this was the only option that time for my dad. Just sick to my stomach, nothing else, yeah. Supriya was the one who broke the news to her mother. Her mother was kind of just really shocked about it. They didn't really understand. The mother and Dira had packed the father a bag of clothes that they could bring to the hospital for him. Um, she had just spoken with him recently. She didn't understand what happened. and. For 
the rest of the family, there was also work to do. So Sujata found out and she immediately went to the hospital to try and pick up his body, but the morgue was closed. So she had to wait a day until she could get her father's body. And, you know, the way that she described it to me, these moments were almost very robotic for her. That's how a person functions in an emergency, the way you should function, because uh, otherwise you'll not be able to do whatever has to be done. It was stressful, but uh, it had to be done. There was no other choice. It was kind of in the moments of quiet that she began to realize, you know, what she had lost. And at what point did their mom get sick? On April 19th, their mother's health started to deteriorate. So as Sujata was cremating her father, her sister and her sister's husband were trying to check their mother into another hospital. I literally did not mourn for my father. Because uh, 18th is when he passed away. And that from that day onward, it was all about taking care of mom. So whoever was sending me condolences, messages for my father, I was just sending them back, please pray for my mother. Because somewhere a fear had got into me. They wanted a private hospital this time because they were just so disappointed with the care that their father had gotten in a government hospital. So they were able, through family connections, to check her into a private hospital. And were they hopeful at that point that that would make the difference in how their mom fared with COVID? Yeah, I think they were they were more hopeful that she would get better care. Their mother was 72, so she was 10 years younger than their father. She tested positive for the virus and a chest scan indicated she had mild pneumonia, but there was no indication that, you know, what she had was a very severe case. And what was the quality of the care in that hospital? It was a struggle for them. I mean, they were really disappointed with the attention she was getting. For a while, they were promised that their mother would get a hospital bed with designated oxygen um, in the ICU, but she actually remained in the ER for the entire duration of her stay. Why did she remain in in the ER the whole time that she was there? They never got an explanation, but they kind of assume it was because there was no room in the ICU. And doctors would make suggestions. For example, they prescribed her remdesivir, um, which is an antiviral drug that helps treat COVID-19, but there was no remdesivir at the hospital. So Sujata had to go and try and find it in the city. People were hoarding the drug. People were trying to sell it for well over $200 a vial. And she just went out like looking for this drug? Like it was her job to go figure out where to find it and bring it back to the hospital? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, they had, you know, no kind of directions or way to get the drug. They had a prescription for her and that was it. And when she finally found a place in the city south that sold the drug, you needed a government stamp prescription in order to get it, which she didn't have because she had checked her mother into a private hospital. Mm. Um, So it just set off this kind of journey of just frustration and anger. You know, they were doing everything they could. And even when they were trying and trying to do it on their own, nothing could work. They were hitting a wall every time. And then what happened? So it's kind of clear the whole time that her mom is not really getting better. They tried remdesivir and then they tried to do a transfusion of plasma from a survivor of COVID-19. So in order to get the plasma, they had to find a donor willing to also donate plasma. So they had to find their own 
their own donor, basically. They did that. And this is for even, you know, an unproven therapy. So they were kind of trying everything that they could. Finally, on April 27th, they were able to pick up the plasma after having gotten a donor approved and gotten their own plasma for their mom's blood type. And they rushed to their mom's side. But by then, she was unconscious. And Sujata had said her fingers had turned blue. And it was in that that afternoon that she died. Oh, my gosh. The sisters lost both parents in nine days. What did they tell you about how they were feeling in that moment? They felt angry and helpless, most of all. They had really tried everything. They had crisscrossed New Delhi, looking for care for both of their parents. They, you know, had the means, they had the resources, and they had the time to really try and save them. But every step of the way, they kind of ran up against a wall or a shortage or, you know, a lack of staffing or just a lack of supplies. And so they just felt really helpless and angry. And I think they both think that, you know, their parents shouldn't have died. Every day was like, you know, what next? And every time my phone was ringing, I was in a panic mode. Because when you're in the tender hooks, you know, you, you don't know what's next. And nobody's telling you right, in giving you information which should be given, which I, I should, we should have been given the information proactively rather than we asking 10 times, okay, what does she need now? Tell us. I think if proper care and attention would have been given, I think we would have had a very different scenario. It was just, uh, I think the infrastructure had completely collapsed with so many patients coming in. And I think nobody knew what they were doing. So many people, since the story has come out, have kind of said, you know, we had really similar experiences of trying to get our relatives the care that they needed and just not being able to find the supplies, not being able to find the space. And is any of that changing or is the government getting more of a hold of the problem so there aren't as many of these families who are sort of left feeling like there just isn't the health care to keep their relatives alive? Things are getting better in New Delhi and the access to care is getting better. Also other countries shipped in oxygen and shipped in supplies and shipped in vaccines. But for Sujata and Supriya's parents, it's too late. And how are Sujata and Supriya doing now? Telling the story, you know, I felt so bad walking them through this time and making them relive these traumatic, 12 traumatic days over and over again as we were trying to kind of figure out how to track their path. But they look back on that time as not, you know, the time that they want to dwell on. They want to tell that story and they want everyone to know what the situation is like for so many in India. It's a story of so many Deliites and the experience that they went through. But for them, it doesn't bring them as much grief as the little losses that they feel every day from their parents' absence. Every corner of uh, the house reminds me of them. With my father, I always had a very father-daughter sort of uh, equation. But with my mother, she was my best friend. And... I used to pull her leg, tease her. Mostly the time that I spent with her was Saturday, Sunday. So every weekend that passes by, it becomes so difficult for me to... Uh, because every... And I, there were there specific corners in the in our living room where we used to sit and, you know, and chat up about nonsensical things and life and so many things. 
my dad used to have this very favorite chair <laughs> and my mom used to sit in this long sofa that was her favorite chair so i can't imagine that room without them all our get togethers everything used to happen birthday get together party diwali everything my sister has not been able to go to that particular room now there'll be memories i guess Ruby Mellon covers foreign affairs for The Post. The story was produced by Emma Talkoff. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was mixed by Renny Svernovsky. You can learn more about the stories in today's show at postreports.com. And join the conversation online using the hashtag PostReports. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back on Monday with more stories from The Washington Post. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Glasses in session. Find Try This from the Washington Post wherever you listen.